Now let's uh, turn to the first book in the Bible, the book of Genesis. And towards the end of the book, in chapter 49. The book of Genesis and chapter 49. Now in this chapter, uh, Jacob is on his deathbed and he is blessing all his sons. And uh, let's look at the blessing that he pronounces upon God. In verse 19. So Genesis 49 at verse 19. God, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. A troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. The name God um, means troop. That is at least one of its meanings. And in this verse, there's a lot of wordplay in the Hebrew. It doesn't come through really in English or perhaps in any other language, but it's full of wordplay. Really, it reads something like this, that God or a troop, a troop shall trample upon him, but he shall trample at last. It's in the authorized version as a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at last. Whichever way we take it, the meaning is essentially the same. He shall be overcome or trampled upon, but he shall overcome or trample himself at last. Now, in a way, this is similar to where we were last Sabbath morning. We were thinking of being more than conquerors, conquerors ultimately, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We saw what that meant. It meant that we take all our afflictions, uh, which we meet in life, that we take them all captive and we make them all work to the good, or God makes sure that they work to the good. Now, that's all very well and true, but we can't escape the fact that there's another side to these things in the Christian life. We'll all be aware of the fact, and uh, we see it in the Bible, that some seem to do better in their spiritual warfare than others do. Uh, Although everyone conquers, uh, some conquer more triumphantly than others. And while some build their lives with gold, silver, and precious stones, others mix the gold, silver, and precious stones with wood, hay, and stubble. And Paul tells us that the people who do that in life are saved, yet so us through fire. In other words, they suffer much loss just because of the decisions and the choices that they made in this life. And we can't deny that that's true. Uh, There are many people, and we have a record of them in Scripture, who chose badly and they suffered accordingly. And the Scriptures tell us that had they chosen differently, that things would have worked differently with them. And uh, that's the experience of God here. When we're told regarding God that a troop shall trample upon him, that's not just a minor setback. 
It's a serious setback with serious consequences. But thanks to the grace of God, thanks to the prevailing love of God, we're told that God himself shall trample at last. So he will be overcome and seriously overcome, but he will himself overcome at last. Well, as I mentioned before the reading there, the scene is a deathbed, and a deathbed is always a solemn scene. And providing the person on it is in the Lord, it's a scene that we're privileged to witness. We always attach special importance to the words spoken on a deathbed, especially when the person lying on it knows that it is a deathbed and that their time is short. And uh, when I say that it's good to witness a deathbed, it's also good to have a deathbed. I've mentioned this several times, but I think it's important repeating. Some people are so afraid of death or, or of the process of dying, perhaps, that, that they wish their death would be quick and sudden. But there's something a little bit selfish in that. A, a deathbed allows us, well, yes, I'm conscious that it brings before us the the reality of death and gives us time to think about it, but that in itself is a good thing. Not just to prepare ourselves, but to prepare others too. It's good to be able to apologize for something or to be reconciled if need be. I hope we don't leave that kind of thing that late, but if need be to reconcile with somebody that we're not reconciled with and to say a farewell to those whom we have loved and who have loved us much in this world. It's good to have that kind of thing on a deathbed. That's why a sudden death is a tragedy for those who are left behind. It's especially important to hear words on a deathbed if they are the words of your father. I think if, if you are privileged to hear your father's last words, I hope that they would be words that you would take with you and remember, especially if your father is an old and experienced Christian. Sometimes the last words of old and experienced Christians are recorded in books because of how precious they are and because of the impact they had on others who were still alive. And how much more you'd remember them if they were concerned with yourself. Your father, I suppose, would know more about your hopes and about your fears than anybody else. He would know you and understand you, perhaps in a way that no one else did, and uh, would often pray for you. So how important your father's words would be on his deathbed. And how much more so on this occasion. The father that we have here is Israel himself, or as he used to be called, Jacob. An old man, now in Egypt, and his sons gathered round him. And in spite of the fact that most of them had spent most of their years in foolishness, and worse than foolishness, in uh, persecution and all kinds of evil, they were now uh, gathered around their father's deathbed. And I think we could say that they were the most favoured and privileged sons in the world. They were the sons of Jacob, after all, the sons of Israel. And as they gather around his bedside, the spirit is present too. And the spirit of prophecy falls upon Jacob. And Jacob begins to tell them about things to come or what shall befall them, he says, in their latter days. Now, these prophecies regarding 
the sons or regarding their tribes are not just to do with themselves as individuals, although that's most certainly in it. It's more to do with their children, their sons, the tribes which would come after them, tribes which would be largely like their own fathers. In other words, the prevailing strengths and weaknesses of their descendants would be the prevailing strengths and weaknesses of themselves. So if Reuben begins well and ends badly, that's going to be true of Abraham's of, of Reuben's tribe or Reuben's descendants. They too will begin well and they will end badly. Now it's no surprise, I suppose, that our families in a way share our own characteristics like that. I mean, they share our own personalities largely. They're normally surrounded with the same opportunities and privileges that we have ourselves. And they're prone, because of their character, their strengths and weaknesses, they're prone to make the same use or misuse of their opportunities and privileges. Like father, like son, the world says. Well, so does the scripture too. Now, some of these sons and some of their tribes are more distinguished than others. Judah will have a clear triumph, for example. Reuben will live, but there's almost a kind of doom announced upon him at the same time. Although these things are relative, I mean, thank God, they are all safe. Uh, They are all among the Lord's people, and we must never lose sight of that. However often the Lord's people fall, they are restored, and their very restoration is the proof of their being the Lord's people. In the Christian life, what matters is not being knocked down, it's rising up again. And it's in the rising, it's in the repentance, it's in the restoration and in the renewal that you see the Lord's people. You don't see them in their fall, you only see them clearly in their renewal and in their restoration. And what's noticeable when you compare the blessings of Jacob here upon the tribes, when you compare them with the blessings of Moses over 300 years later, He blesses the tribes too. They all have conflict. Um, That shouldn't surprise us. They have to fight for their inheritance. We all do. We have to fight for our inheritance. And this conflict is very marked in the experience of some. Concerning Judah, we're told in verse 8 that his hand would be on the neck of his enemies. Concerning Dan, In verse 17, we're told that he shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. Conflict again. Joseph in verse 22, it begins so brightly with a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well with branches running over the wall. But here's the conflict. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him and hated him, but his bow remained in strength. Benjamin, verse 27, a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey. Night he shall divide the spoil. Um, Some, like I mentioned, will do well in the conflict. Others, like Gad here in verse 19, will not do so well. A troop shall trample him, but he shall trample at last. Now, I want to look with you at one who does rather poorly, that is Gad. And I have a reason for that, because I think many of us perhaps are doing poorly, or not as well as we could or should. Now, that's not true of all. But we all do need to examine ourselves and ask, 
whether we are doing as much with the resources that we have and the opportunities that we have in the spiritual conflict, whether we are doing as much as we should or as much as we could. I suppose when we say as much as we should, we can say, well, that's infinite, but as much as we could. Let me begin with an important distinction. When I'm talking about conflict here, um, there's, a, there's an important distinction to be drawn. And that's the distinction between the conflict that comes our way and the conflict that we bring on ourselves. And I'm sure you know the difference between these two. The conflict that comes your way and the conflict that you simply bring upon yourself. The conflict that comes your way sent by God, well, special promises apply for that. And uh, when you take these special promises and use them, you grow by them. These conflicts are designed exclusively for your growth. You grow through them. But there are other conflicts that you bring on yourself by leaving yourself open, by making poor requests, by asking for bad things and making bad choices and taking wrong steps. Different promises apply then, although you'll try and apply other promises, but there are different promises that will apply. And instead of growing, you're stunted by them. And as I mentioned earlier, you may be saved, yet so as through fire. In other words, to carry on that same figure that Paul had there in 1 Corinthians 3, you're building the temple of your soul before God, not exclusively with gold, silver, and precious stones, but with wood, hay, and stubble. And when the fire of God sears its way through that temple of your soul, so much of it, so much of it will be burnt up and consumed because so much of it was so full of self and pride and vanity. Now, the interesting thing here is that God's conflicts were conflicts that he brought upon himself. Just as was true of Reuben too and half the tribe of Manasseh. Now, uh, Gad was one of three tribes that settled on the east of the Jordan. We read about that in the passage. I'll come to it in a second, but you'll just remember how the three tribes the three tribes, originally two, actually, it seems to be just Gad and Reuben, although half of Manasseh were sucked into it. I want you to notice that, by the way, how just one affects another. But initially, Gad and Reuben came up to Moses with a request. The request was that they could settle on the east of the Jordan, where they had just defeated uh, the Amorites and King Og of Bashan. Now, I know this request was granted, but I still think we can say very strongly that this request was not good. You'll notice that Moses tries to talk them out of it. He doesn't do it very strongly. Maybe that's because it's the Lord's intention to give it to them. But he tries to get them not to settle there. One of the things he says that if you settle, he says, on this side of the river, you're, you're going to discourage the rest. Your failure won't just be your own failure. It'll be the failure of everyone or the failure of many. And that, after all, is how the Christian life works anyway. It's one of the things that uh, ought to speak to us very often, that our own failures will be the failures of others. If our hands slacken, another's hands will slacken. And that's why you must see to it that you are always fervent in spirit 
and diligent in serving the Lord. Moses said, look, he said to them, this has happened before. This happened 40 years ago. I sent people to spy out the land. Ten of them came back and brought an evil report of the land. And he said, before I knew where I was, the whole congregation wanted to turn back. And he said, you're going to do the same by downing tools and by settling where you shouldn't settle, he says, you're going to discourage everybody. Oh, pray that the Lord would give you wholeheartedness in his service, if not just for your own sake, for other people's sake too. A wholehearted you will make a wholehearted other. But the three tribes assured Moses that they weren't just wanting their own rest. They said, let us build a city seer, he says, for the safety of our, our wives and families. But we're prepared to fight and to fight with our brethren. And only when the conflict is finished and our brethren have inherited their inheritance, only then will we return to our own land. And Moses said, well, if you do that, he says, then you shall be guiltless of it. In other words, you've done your duty of warfare. The call was to battle, and at least you're not shirking the battle. But still, the fact remains, and we can't overlook this, and it becomes more important as we go on. We, we can't overlook the fact that they chose the land on the east of the Jordan, which was not where they were supposed to be. And it's the place where they were most likely to be a danger. Uh, they were going to be separate from their brethren for a start because the Jordan River was forming a natural barrier between themselves and the rest of their brethren, as well as the cliffs that are along that way. So it was to be a separate country and was more closely linked to the nations on the other side of them. So in some ways they had less of a barrier um, to the heathen nations on the other side than they had with their own brethren to the west of the Jordan. In other words, they had no real border against sin. Now, Christians, uh, you've always got to watch your borders. Um, your borders need to be manned. Your borders need to be fortified. Where, where you're most in contact with the world, that's where you need to be most careful, most careful. Well, it's interesting that God here and Reuben chose land that was in danger. But God gave it to them. And in a way, this is the mystery. I suppose we could say, well, why does God give it to them? Why does God give it to them? Well, the answer to that spiritually, whatever else you make of it or however else you understand it, the answer to that spiritually is that God gave it to them because they had set their hearts upon it. They had set their hearts upon it. And God gives us what we are determined to set our hearts upon. I don't know if you noticed when we read it in Numbers 32, but when they first of all come with their request to Moses, and Moses must have been taken aback by it, but they simply say, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to us as a possession, don't take us over the Jordan. 
There's not much revealed in that other than just a desire to stay in the land where they are there and then. But when we move forward after Moses has made his speech, appealing to them not to do it, you'll notice that they've planned for it. They've got a rehearsed speech. They, they come to him and they say in verse 16, we'll build sheepfolds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones, obviously their wives too, but we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place. Now, they have a very distant way of speaking about their brethren. I don't know if you've noticed that, but they're always speaking about them as the children of Israel and their place and so on. Verse 18, we will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. We will build sheepfolds and we will build cities. So they've made their plans. This isn't a sudden request. They've consulted. They've spoken about it. They're presenting what you would almost call a fait accompli to Moses. It's, a, it's always a very dangerous thing when you're not sure whether you ought to do something to make too many plans for it before seeking the Lord's face. Is this what he wants? Is this what we ought to do? But instead, they just make plans to do it. And then the cat's out of the bag in verse 19. In spite of the language that they've used, they say in verse 19, for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan. Now, you'll notice the increasing strength in their language, the determination. You can't tell at the beginning, but you can tell at the end. Let's read 18 and 19 together. We will not return to our homes. Now, this is good, sounds good. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them, really, on the other side of the Jordan and beyond, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this east side of the Jordan. Uh, well, why are you asking Moses if you can do it? If you're convinced that your inheritance is on the east of the Jordan, who told you so? And if you claim that God told you so, why are you bothering asking Moses for his ratification? Really, what happened is that they saw the land and they liked the land. They desired the land. And then they concluded that it must be God's will. <laughs> this is land for livestock, they said. Great land for livestock. We have lots of livestock. Therefore, this land is meant to be ours. It seems as simple and as straightforward as that. And of course, when you're determined to do something, you'll notice that prayer and providence and word, all these three, prayer, providence and word, will mysteriously conform themselves to your desire. When you pray, you will feel warm when you're asking for the thing that you want. And you'll call it liberty. When providences uh, appear, you'll call them tokens. And sometimes they can be quite strong, like the fitness of this land for livestock was 
well, made it fit for livestock, but that doesn't mean that it was God's will for you. There was better land on the other side of the Jordan, perhaps, for your livestock. But when you're looking for providences to support what you want, everything becomes a token. And even the word of God, when you read it well, you will mysteriously apply passages that have nothing to do with your situation because you want it to have something to do with your situation. So that powerful trinity of prayer, providence, and word, which always come together for the good, can mysteriously start coming together for evil. Why? Because you want it to be so. There is nothing so good that you can't abuse. These are three great gifts, prayer, providence, and word. When they come together, it's wonderful. But when you force them together, not so. So they became convinced. And you see, what that means really is when they came to Moses, it wasn't his guidance that they were wanting or a, a ruling of some kind. They, they just wanted his acquiescence in the matter. It's a rubber stamp. It's like a man who comes to the session for the ministry and you can tell speaking to them after a while that it's not your assessment they really want. It's your ratification. They are already sure from prayer, providence, and word that they ought to be ministers, and it's your duty to rubber stamp that, as though God hadn't told anyone to assess these things at all. Or it's like a man coming to a minister about marrying an unconverted girl. And again, they're not really wanting guidance on the matter. They're wanting ratification because their mind is made up. And very often, they'll give you a word from the Bible, or they'll give you a providence, or something that they felt in prayer that this ought to be so, even though the word of God says otherwise. But that's no different to what Gad and Reuben were doing. It was the other side that God wanted to give them. But they like this side, and it looks suitable for their purposes, so give us this side of the land. And as I said, God gives it. God gives it. Because he allows a strong desire to have its own way. But though he gives you this desire of your heart, it's not the best. It would be better had you done something else. Now, <clears throat> I'm conscious that there's a way of looking at these things. And I've heard it often said that, well, God always gives his people the best. And this must have been the best for them. And, uh, you know, you can quote text to that effect. You may say something like that the Lord will withhold no good thing from them that uprightly do live. Or even the text that we had last Sabbath morning, which tell us that God will work all things together for the good. But God working all things together for the good is not necessarily saying that everything you receive in this life is the best. And even when God says that he'll withhold no good thing from them that uprightly do live, that's a conditional thing, is it not? Yes, he'll withhold no good thing from them that uprightly do live. But what about those who cease to walk uprightly? What about those who choose bypath meadow instead of the path of holiness? What about those who are reluctant to ascend hill difficulty and decide to walk around it. Is it then going to be true that God will withhold no good thing for them? 
Yes, he may work everything together that comes their way to the good, but does that mean that they receive the best? Well, again, you can come back on that. You say, well, yes, but even, even if you choose wrongly, God gives you his chastisement, which is for your profit. Well, that's absolutely true. But does that mean that it's still the best? Does it mean that it's the best you could have had? Does it mean that it's as good as if you had not strayed at all? We read uh, Psalm 81, uh, and, and we sang it. No, sorry, we read it. We'll, we'll sing it later. Um, where, where the Lord says, Oh, that my people... Well, he says, To the lust of their own hearts I delivered them. Why? Because they would have none of me. They were not attentive to my voice. So I delivered them to the lust of their own hearts. And then he says, In counsels of their own they vainly wander. Oh, that my people had me heard. Now, what does the Lord mean by that? Surely it means that they're missing out on something they could have had, does it not? Oh, that Israel my ways had chose. I had their enemies soon subdued and my hand turned on their foes. In other words, they could have avoided what they've got themselves into. And then the words of verse 16, he should have also fed them with the finest of the wheat, of honey from the rock thy fill. I should have made thee eat. Now, what's that if it's not a missed blessing? A missed blessing because of a bad choice or a bad series of choices? And the saddest thing in the world is that we make these false choices for our own comfort and our peace. And what we do is we put out peace far from us. We put out comfort far from us. He would have fed them with the finest of the wheat, and he would have made us eat our fill of honey from the rock. Take again Israel when they became fed up of the manna. Isn't that astonishing? They became fed up of the manna. Have you ever been in that situation yourself, where you're weary of the manna that you receive? It seems almost unthinkable, but it's possible. And they began to lust after meat. God eventually, when they were wearying him with their lusting after meat, God gave them meat until it came out their, their nostrils. And he says of it that I gave it to you in my anger, he says. In my anger. So they, they were satisfied with it when they got it. But it brought leanness to their souls. To their souls he leanness sent. That's missing a blessing, is it not? How can leanness to your soul, a soul which ought to be fat and full of sap and flourishing, how can that be a good thing? When Israel desired a king, God says, I gave you a king in my anger. Same as he said about the meat, I gave you meat in my anger because you wanted it intently. Well, he says, I gave you a king in my anger because you wanted it. Your desire for a king, just like their desire for meat, was greater than your desire for me. So I gave you what you desired. It wasn't me. I gave you what you wanted. And what did Israel get from Saul's reign? But 40 years of grief. Lot desired Sodom, didn't he? 
It was the desire of his heart when he lifted up his eyes and he saw the well-watered country of Sodom. So God allowed him to have it. You'll know, most of you, that Lot was very fortunate to escape out of Sodom with his life. Astonishingly, he was dragged out of it by angels. You'd have thought at that point that God would have left him to it altogether. But praise God that he doesn't leave his own altogether. As we read in the morning, he does not cast off his own people or forsake them utterly, but they can make bad choices. He's dragged out of Sodom by the angels. And uh, the corruption, the corruption had so entered his daughters that they were ruined by Sodom. Ruined by it. So beware of the desire of your heart. Yes, the scripture says, he'll give thine heart's desire to thee. That's said in a good way. When you're desiring a good thing, he'll give thine heart's desire to thee. But it's also true on the other side. He will also give you the desire of your heart if you're longing for something more than himself. He may give it to you until you learn what an evil and a bitter thing it is to depart from the living God, as Jeremiah tells us. Um, if your heart's desire is focused on self and not God, beware. And you've got to test yourself on that. Test yourself. Test yourself daily on that. What do you want and why? Now, these three tribes, Reub and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, I said to you the half-tribe of Manasseh were sucked into this. That's the bad power of a bad example. The these three tribes were comparative failures. Now, I say comparative for a reason, because they weren't absolute failures. They won't be absolute failures. I'll explain that later. But they were comparative failures. J Jacob said solemnly of Reuben, he says, though you are my firstborn, he says, you won't excel. You won't excel. And he gives the reason why. 300 years later, Moses' blessing on Reuben is pretty much reduced to this, may he live and not die. It's, it's just a prayer that he'd survive, which thank God he did. Manasseh, well, he's eclipsed by Ephraim in the north, although he was originally the firstborn. Now, uh, God saw to that. I mean, you'll remember how... Um, Joseph wanted Ephraim and Manasseh blessed, and Jacob blessed them both, but he crossed his hands at the last moment that the primary blessing would go to Ephraim. And Manasseh was eclipsed. He was split in two anyway, because half of his tribe was dragged over onto the east of the Jordan by the power of Reuben and Gad. And as for Gad himself, well, all we're told here is that he's going to be overcome, seriously overcome. And in the only glimpse that we have of Gad in the history of God's people, we see him, first of all, overcoming, but then overcome by others. Now, that's the opposite of what you've got in this text. I'll explain why in a minute. This text tells us that he's going to be overcome, but that he will prevail himself at the end. But the glimpse that we have of him in the scripture is actually the other way around. We see him overcoming, but then being overcome by others. Now you see him overcoming in First Chronicles and chapter 5. We're told in verse 18 that the sons of Reuben, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, now these are the three tribes on the east, had 44,000 
760 valiant men and were told their qualifications with the bow and the arrow and so on, were told that they made war with the Hagrites, Jetur, Nafish, and Nodab. Now, the Hagrites are the descendants of Hagar. Hagar, you'll remember, was Abraham's slave wife, and she gave birth to the child of the flesh, not to the child of the promise. <clears throat> That's Scripture's way here of telling us that this is essentially a spiritual warfare, uh, this is the warfare of God's people, and it's the warfare against against the flesh. They made war with the Hagrites, and they were helped against them. And the Hagrites were delivered into their hand, and all who were with them, because they cried out to God in the battle. That is obviously the Gadites. Too. And God heeded their prayer, because they put their trust in him. Now, this is a wonderful start. They made war against the children of Hagar. That's like setting out in the conflict against the flesh and the principalities and the powers. And they overcame. And why did they overcome? Because in verse 22, the war was the Lord's, we're told. It was a spiritual warfare. They were fighting for God. We're told that God heeded their prayer, that they cried to God in the battle. God listened to their prayer because they put their trust in him. Let's reverse the order there. Instead of saying they cried in the battle, God heard them because they put their trust in him. Let's just reverse it and say they put their trust in him. Therefore, they prayed, crying out to God in the battle, and therefore God delivered them. That's the way it works. They trusted God in this warfare. Therefore, they prayed in this warfare, and God heard their prayer, and God delivered them. Now, what more could you ask for than that? That is starting well, setting out as we should all set out and as we should all continue. And we're told that they settled in the land. We're told that they dwelt in their place, verse 22, until the captivity. But then just a few verses later on, we read this. And they became unfaithful to the God of their fathers. And they played the harlot after the gods of the peoples of the land whom God had destroyed before them. What a ridiculous thing it is to go back to a world that God had exposed for you, a world that God had conquered for you. What a ridiculous thing it is to go back to it. And so we're told that the God of Israel stirred up the spirit of the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, and he took the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh into Captivity. That's the borders again. That's the borders. They were most exposed to the heathen attack. And eventually, when they started playing around with the things of the world, the world took them and the world carried them into captivity. And that is the consequence of their initial choice many, many years before. So even though they had done well and God allowed them to do well, that choice came back to bite. It came back to bite. They were too exposed, they were too close to the world, and they were too separate from their brethren. The, <clears throat> an interesting thing, I didn't read this passage, I didn't refer to it either, but <clears throat> when they actually went to take up their inheritance on the east of the Jordan, they built a huge altar. Uh, just on the border between themselves and the rest of the children of Israel. And um, 
Israel were angry when they saw this altar going up and they said, this is going to be a rival altar. You're setting up a, a separate worship. And they said, no, no, they said, this altar is a replica of, of your altar. But they said, we will never offer anything on it. We're not going to worship at it. Nothing like that. It's just something for us to look at, they said, and to remind ourselves of who we belong to. Well, that's all very well and good. And the children of Israel let them off with that. But the fact of the matter is that they felt they needed that. Even at the very start, they felt that they were being somehow cut off from the people of God by their choice. And eventually that starts to tell. Friend, when, when we choose some kind of worldly comfort above really supporting the Lord's people or being with the Lord's people or being one with them and united with them, then we, we are sowing deeds of trouble for ourselves. And they were overcome at the last. They were the first to be taken into captivity. It's no surprise. They exposed themselves to that. It's one thing, as I said at the beginning, to have a conflict thrust upon you. It's another thing to invite the conflict onto yourself. So they overcame in their youth. But now they are overcome. But, but, our promise from Jacob's blessing, the original blessing is that Though they would be overcome, they themselves would overcome at last. So that raises the question, how? How will God overcome? How did God overcome? Did God overcome? When did God overcome or when will God overcome? I ask when will because there's only one answer to this question. God will overcome when, as Paul says, all Israel shall be saved. Just now God is scattered. Scattered with Reuben, scattered with Issachar, scattered with Zebulun, scattered with all the tribes that eventually gave way. And no one knows where they are, except God. God knows where the children of God are. Even right now, as I'm talking and you're listening, God knows where God is. Even if they don't know it themselves. And they will come. Because the calling of Israel, Paul tells us, the election of Israel is without repentance. God cannot cast off the people that he foreknew. That text is not just applicable to ourselves. That our election means that he can never cast us off. His election of Israel too means that he can never cast Israel off. Can never cast her off. She looks cast off, but she's not. She's wandering, but she's wandering for her sins. And she will return. When? On that great day when they will look on him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. As for an only son. Um. <clears throat> Just to to clarify that a little bit, it's interesting in these blessings, you see, that Jacob pronounces on his children. Uh, the, the chief of the, well, the, there are two blessings that are stronger than the rest. That's the blessing on Joseph and the blessing on Judah. Uh, Judah, of course, is preeminent. You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's children shall bow down before you and the scepter shall not depart from you from judah 
until Shiloh comes. Shiloh, the man of peace, who comes from Judah. And uh, all his brethren shall bow down to him. In other words, all the scattered people of Israel uh, will recognize the seed of Judah who holds the scepter, the man of peace, Shiloh, the son of God. And they will bow to him. And when he does, he'll open the storehouses of Egypt for them. After all, um, Judah's purpose, like Joseph's, was to bless the people. The staff was given him to feed the people and to shepherd them. And so then, God will return. He shall overcome at last. God will be a conqueror. The people of Israel, in that respect, as a body corporate, represent ourselves as individual bodies. Israel's corporate history ends in salvation, just as our personal, individual history as the people of God ends in salvation too. Why? Because the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. God's elections, whether they are a national election of Israel or the individual election of every soul that belongs to him to eternal life is without repentance. He cannot change what with his mouth is bore. So God will be a conqueror at the last. Trampled he might be, but trample he shall. Upon the adder thou shalt tread, and on the lion's strong, thy feet on dragons trample shall, and on the lion's young. So there are two ways of conquering, I suppose. Some will conquer well, others perhaps less well. But the Lord's people will always conquer in the end. Praise the one who assures that we overcome. Every promise, let me say in conclusion to the letter, every promise made to the churches of the Revelation that receive the letters is ended by, to him that overcometh, I will give. To him that overcometh, I will give. The Lord's people are overcomers in the end. May the Lord bless our meditation on his word.